Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is a HeadGum Podcast. Good morning, halflings! Welcome! It is our second day of class here at Halfling U, and don't forget, we are a historically black Halfling University, if you couldn't tell by the music. While we have a storied history with the black Halfling community, we welcome aspiring social justice creatures of all kinds and identities at Halfling University. I am your headmistress and professor of cultural studies, the future Dr. Jones. This semester, as we discovered last time, we are studying empathic communication, popular culture, and the civic imagination. If there are some words you're not familiar with there, don't worry, we will explain everything. In each episode, we're covering a topic that asks how popular culture stories can make us more empathic people and facilitate a more peaceful society. In today's session, well, actually, let me back up a little bit. Last week, we talked about what empathy is, what it means, how it's different from sympathy. We didn't go too much into pity and compassion, I don't think, but it is distinct from those as well. And we talked about the rise of Barack Obama, a personal memory I shared about voting for him, the speech he gave at Northwestern in 2006 about the empathy deficit. And then we also talked a little bit about the Bernie Sanders op-ed that reflected on the 2016 election. And so if you would like to catch up on those, make sure you go back and watch episode one or listen to episode one. I, we're not recording video because I don't look good right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I picked this version because I don't have to dress up for class. <laughs> I like that we have just established definitively that there will be no video recording of this yeah, well. available. Yeah. I already Sorry, told Daniel. a surprise guest that there wouldn't be video, so... Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah. The surprise guest so, will not be appearing in this episode. I not in this episode. The Steven Universe episode they will appear for. Ooh. Uh, so, we did also talk a little bit about affect and apathy in capitalism, but now I want to go a little bit deeper into the theory and talk about affect studies. So today, let's see, I want to find a specific quote to start out with, and then I will go into some details on it. And of course, the item that I need is not here. While you're looking that up, I'll just introduce myself. Hey, yo, it's me, captain of the football team here, again, trying to get that class credit so that I can graduate because I'm probably not going to make it to the NFL. My name's Jeremy. But you nerds can call me J-Cobb. Hey, J-Cobb, what's your pronouns, man? My pronouns? I don't even know. I ain't going to be able to go pro with my nouns. I just told you. <laughs> I ain't going to make it to the league. 
I ain't good enough. I was a big fish in a small <laughs> pond when I was in high school. But now, unfortunately, I've realized my limitations. And so I'm trying to pivot into academia. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I can but when I'm just- not, when people refer to me by words other than my name, they usually say he or him. Excellent. Mine this, version of, of, <laughs> this version of Jeremy Cobb is one of those people that posts, I'm never dating a girl that uses pronouns. Yeah, every, everybody. Only amateur now. I would feel inferior <laughs> if she could use pronouns, but if I could use pronouns. If she was good too. enough to go pronoun. Amateur nouns only. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I want yeah. I want nouns that peaked in high school or no nouns at all. Pre 2020 <laughs> NCAA. Um, <laughs> the secret yeah. nerd over there. Yeah. Well, hi. I am the captain of the debate team. I am Navar, pronouns he, him. I am also a secret, not-so-secret nerd, host and creator of that show. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. I'll hold up these books and make sure I can teach Jeremy Cobb about how to use pronouns. Mm-hmm. Yo, look, man, if you could figure out some way with, with your maths and your nerdery to get me into the league, I'll do it, man. I don't care if it's pharmaceuticals. I'll do it. <laughs> All right. We pharmaceutical pronouns <laughs> okay i'm going to be chagrined because i thought i had the thing i needed and i don't but give me a this happens in real pay, life we're doing this, this on purpose so you know what it's like to be in a real classroom where the real professor is as absent-minded as i am uh, <laughs> professor why okay. why are you hung over i can smell the alcohol on you were you out partying last night no, I just Did got really dehydrated because I didn't drink enough water. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I've been studying the material. If you'd like, I can teach the class. Shut up, nerd. I just push <laughs> all of Navarre's like, thoroughly organized notes just onto the ground. I don't and then feel I start like, crying. I feel like Navarre's playing a math myself. version of me. I did, in Why? fact, teach my math class in high school. So, yeah. <laughs> Nice. I That's hate amazing. math. <laughs> yeah. Me too. I was just but good. Was, oh my goodness. All right. So I found the section that I'm going to go from, and it's not a specific quote, but it is some writing that I've done. So instead of quoting, you know, all these scholars, I'm going to quote myself. All right. Here also we go. A scholar. Mm-hmm. It's true. At least I will be by the time this is over. An empathic public sphere. So to continue our conversation, we're going to mosey through our hypothetical empathy summit social hour, and we're going to put together two people at the same table that you might not expect, especially if you have no idea who they are, which is perfectly valid. Doctors Brene Brown, a doctor of social work, and Nancy Fraser, PhD. Brene Brown uses a grounded theory approach to the nature of healthy relationships and the social mechanics of connection. And Fraser's work complicates Habermas, surprisingly necessary, and it allows us to begin to imagine the outline of an empathic public sphere. So we're going to start with Brown. Her most well-known work, The Power of Vulnerability, is best experienced as an audiobook, in my opinion, in which she gives it as a series of lectures. She opens the lecture by setting out the problem. We live in a culture of deep scarcity defined by never enough. She reminds the audience how frequently Frequently, we go to bed at night thinking, I didn't get enough done today, and wake up thinking, I didn't get enough sleep. It's not a far leap from this frame of mind to the idea that we ourselves are not enough. And Brown found, unfortunately for herself, 
that this kind of belief cannot be resolved through an argument based on logos and empirical observation. When I say logos here, I'm referring to the way Greek philosophers broke it down, broke down speech into pathos, logos, and ethos. Pathos having to do with emotions, logos having to do with intellect and logic, and ethos having to do with the character of the person speaking. So, in this case, I'm referring to logos and empirical observation. Empirical observation just means that it can be independently verified by another person. So, like and, somebody else can somebody else can be like, oh, they can basically check your work and mm-hmm. uh, verify that you're telling that you are correct or yeah. telling the truth. Okay. Well, like basically, review. exactly. That's the vast majority of science that you think about when you hear the word science is empirical it's stuff it's experiments that can be replicated it's stuff that can be observed by another person emotions for a large part are not empirical there are things that you can measure that are indicators of emotions like cortisol levels facial movements body language, all kinds of things that you can measure that are indicators of emotions, but without the person self-reporting what they are feeling, you cannot empirically observe. And because you can't actually feel what that person is feeling 100%, setting aside the fact that we did talk about empathy as a way of feeling what others are feeling, it's not possible to empirically observe someone else's emotion. So Brown, who is someone who is self-reportedly obsessed with logos and logic and measuring and having everything in discrete chunks that she can analyze, found it to be very complicated that you can't really observe this kind of stuff in that way. And through her research, she did find that the wholehearted people people who believe themselves to be enough in reference to what we were just discussing in terms of I didn't get enough done today or I didn't get enough sleep. People who were believed themselves to be enough got that way partly through embracing their own vulnerability. Brown confesses, and this is in a TED talk that you guys can look up at any time if you like, that this caused her to have a gigantic breakdown in which she temporarily abandoned her research in order to take up therapy and came to therapy prepared with a detailed syllabus, weekly exercises, and the caveat that there would be no family stuff. Brown and her audience share a giggle in that moment at the expense of past her, who would soon realize her mistakes. It's not possible to heal without vulnerability and a willingness to do the things that make us uncomfortable. The sharing of family history is necessary not only because it's an exercise in calculated vulnerability, but because our earliest experiences with vulnerability are most often filtered through that lens. The ultimate in vulnerability is the human newborn, unable even to lift its own head. In my experience, therapy has never reached back quite that far, but I have had to reckon at age 29, at the time of writing this paragraph, with the divorce of my parents almost 23 years prior to that. And of course, I'm 35 now, and it's still something that I grapple with from time to time as many adult children of divorce would know. After therapy, in which her, for the record, social workers and folks like that go to special therapists who deal with people who do therapy. So 
after her therapist kind of walked her through the letting go of the analytical framework and embracing her vulnerability, Brene returned to the work with greater clarity. She realized that empathy cannot exist without vulnerability. As she puts it, if you share something with me that's difficult, in order for me to be truly empathic, I have to step into what you're feeling, and that's vulnerable. So there can be no empathy without vulnerability. So let's take a pause there and talk about empathy and vulnerability. And maybe if you can think of a time when you had to put yourself into an uncomfortable feeling in order to properly empathize with somebody. Mm. Can you, I, I raise my hand very yes. like, Captain I think Tom. firmly I say, <laughs> professor, not that I need it, but you know, in case somebody did looking around the room, <sighs> could you maybe remind us of the definition that we're using for the word empathy? Yeah, I absolutely Please. can do that. For all the other people who forgot it, but not me. <laughs> Let That's me... very considerate of all you, right. Cap. Yeah, I'm so, being empathetic. <laughs> you're being empathic. That, yeah, that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So See, I was testing right. you. You, you passed. Exactly. You <laughs> I'll go over those definitions real quick. So I'm going to quote again from where we did last time from the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, and this is from their blog specifically. So empathy originally was a technical term for aesthetics and psychology, psychology, defined as the power of projecting one's personality into and so fully comprehending the object of contemplation. And then from the mid 20th century, it shifted in meaning to be the ability, excuse me, to understand and appreciate another person's feelings, experience, etc. And then we also discussed how Daniel Goleman, the author of Emotional Intelligence, notes that empathy is best tested by sampling a person's ability at a task. For example, reading emotions and feelings from a video of facial expressions. So that implies that there are different functions of empathy One is being able to feel what another person is feeling. Two is being able to identify that feeling and describe it. And then three is being able to communicate that feeling back to another person. So those are all aspects of empathy. And there are different ways of referring to them, but we don't need to go into the details for this purposes. And then we also talked through my personal definitions that I created for this project, differentiating between empathic and empathetic, with empathic referring to things that are characterized by or functioning through empathy. For example, the Stanislavski method of acting depends on an empathic imagination. Or a quality describing the ability to empathize. For example, social workers, like Brene Brown, tend to be very empathic people. Antonyms are apathetic, cold, clinical, indifferent. Whereas empathetic is an adjective meaning deserving, deserving of or provoking empathy. For example, the news coverage demonstrated a belief in the empathetic nature of the protesters' plight. Or many dog owners describe puppy dog eyes as a very empathetic expression. 
Antonyms, abject, disgusting, obnoxious, repulsive, and you can contrast that with pathetic. So if you pity something, you don't call yourself pathetic. It's the object that you're observing that's pathetic or subject. All right. So we're going to go. You are quite welcome. I'm going to add a note because I just saw a thing that I want to come back to. Navar. Do you have any instances when you had to use, you had to be vulnerable in order to be empath- empathic? Because that's the term. That's the term, Good right? Job. Good job. Points um, for, for Captain Cop. I knew you were a nerd. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of like a specific one. I, I know because I interview people every week, we often talk about very difficult instances in their life that have like affected that the, w- the way that they look at the world and things like that. And so I think there's usually an example there of the fact that I have to be vulnerable in what I'm willing to tell my guests so that they are also willing to be vulnerable in what they tell me and understand that like, and to give them the feeling, the genuine feeling that I am trustworthy and that I'm not going to like, hurt them with this information. Right. And so I think, you know, having people share very intimate life experiences on a podcast is something that you have to be vulnerable when you're doing. And because a lot of the ways that I communicate is through relation, relating my own stories. That's also something that I do as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely, I mean, I recently had a guest come on and talk about how his parents wouldn't talk to him at all because they didn't want him to get an accent as a kid. So, yeah, I mean, like, so things like that, like, are obviously very difficult situations. Mm -hmm. And to be able to have those conversations and continue that conversation and figure out where the, um, you know, how much to dig and and that kind of thing, I think, is, is how I personally use empathy. Yeah. Hmm. What you just said actually reminded me of, did you, did either of you have to read The Chosen? I think it was The Chosen. The the novel, The Chosen, in high school? I Um, I think it's by Chaim I was going to say, yeah, it sounds like, yeah, the the name reminds me of The Giver as well, but yeah. Yeah. No, it is, it is not like The Giver. Although Mm -hmm. The Giver does involve quite a lot of empathy, but the story that you just told reminded me of that because in that story, in that book, that book is about... I don't remember what decade they're in, but basically young Jewish boys growing up, I think in New York. And one of the characters has a really difficult relationship with his father because his father basically does not speak to him or emotionally relate to him in any way because he's trying, he knows he's going to have to grow up to be a rabbi. I believe his dad is a rabbi and he's like, you're going to grow up to be a rabbi and I need Mm -hmm. you to suffer like this so that you Mm -hmm. will have more empathy for others. No, I don't think the book is presenting this as like a Jewish value per se, but that's no, like yeah. that's the big twist at the end is that the father has been the father is trying to prepare his son for the for his duties when he eventually oh, no. has to empathize with people. We um, lost Cobb for a second. Yeah, it's very interesting. But that's okay. Uh, but I guess um, in answer to the question. It sounds like what he was saying is that yeah. the up uh, here. Well, we back. lost you for a sec. Oh. Again? In and out. But so I'm going to just go go ahead and address a little bit of what Navar was saying in terms of using not you 
we're not talking about manipulating people here, but we are talking about being aware of our emotional context in relation to other people. So when you're willing to step into your vulnerability, it's, I find personally, and I think you'll, based on the example that you gave, it sounds like you probably do too, that when you're willing to be vulnerable with people, they are more inclined to trust you just right off the bat. And it makes them more comfortable feeling like because you trusted them with something of your own vulnerability, they can also trust you. Yes. And I think the example you gave speaking about, I assume the person was, uh Oh, looks like we lost them all together. Hopefully he will rejoin us. But the example that you gave, if I was, talking to that person i think i might say something like wow that's that must have been really hurtful also i personally didn't have that experience but i do know what it's like to get emotional neglect from family members and it can be really rough and i'm very sorry you're going through that right now please let me know if there's anything i can do to help and I think in that instance, what I'm doing is both embracing, first of all, meeting that person's emotion where they're at. So that must be very hurtful. That's the first sort of emotion that I identify out of that. And reflecting it back on them says something to the degree of like, I see you, I see what you're feeling. And I see that you are hurting in this moment. And then if you go on and say, you know, I haven't had that experience. Like we want to be sure that when we're employing empathic communication, that we're not dictating the person's experience or telling them how they felt, but saying from my perspective, this is how I might feel is that. And then you give them a chance to either concur with that opinion or to reshape it a little bit. So in that example, I said it would be hurtful. They could say, actually, no, it wasn't hurtful. It was, it was just ambiguous or they could say something else entirely, but I at least offered what I, what I'm hearing. And then to go on a little further to say, you know, I didn't have that experience, but I had this experience that made me feel in a way that I think would be similar to what you're feeling. And that way you've given more vulnerability. You've looked at an example of how you might feel the things that they're feeling and therefore giving them an opportunity to connect with you in that way. And also to possibly, if they want to expand on what they were saying and how it's similar or different or to shift the focus off of them and talk about you for a moment. But in any case, the one of the big point I want to make here is that in order to get to that spot, you have to be vulnerable yourself. You have to be willing to bring up that feeling of being emotionally neglected or bringing up that feeling of family members who thought they were doing something in your best interest, but were really doing something very harmful. So, all that is to say that that's a great example, and I really liked it. Thanks. Mr. Cobb, you're back. Yes. I had to go to All the bathroom right. very abruptly. Oh, yes. No no chamber pot magic in here, unfortunately. <laughs> we really got to see somebody about that. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we just we just use toilets, just like normal toilets. Um, so you yes. were talking about the book that you had read as a youngster about a group of a Jewish community in which the father was sort of withholding affection from the son to prepare him in a sense. And it, yeah, what Navarre was saying about the parents who essentially were doing something that may have been, obviously I have not heard that episode, but may have been very painful and possibly traumatic for the child. They were attempting to do that in order to help them in other ways. Uh, that was, it reminded me of that situation. And it just so happened that in this particular case, in the story, it was done in part because of empathy, because essentially the idea was that the, I, I believe if anybody out there knows the chosen better than me, please feel free to correct me. But what I seem to remember is that the, the, his, he was anticipating that his son would have to essentially bear the weight of everyone else's pain in the community. And so he was trying to, I think, increase his capacity to endure emotional and psychological pain in order to prepare him for that. Okay. Yeah. It so. comes off differently in the book, but that's essentially what yes. I am <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a good book. Did it actually know? is a really good book. Check it out. But the... Yeah, I'm trying to think. So, hmm. You know what, Teach? Why don't you tell me if this would count as empathy? I'm not really sure. I, in order to understand, I, I really enjoy ha being friends with people who are different than me. And mm -hmm. I will usually try because they will hold different experiences and perspectives to mine. And part of how mm -hmm. I kind of express friendship with someone usually is I will ask them questions about their experiences, often experiences that they have that are different to my experiences. Sometimes mm -hmm. this, I guess, I think can, for some people seem like territory where it's like, it's, I, it can be similar to be like, Hey, you're this category of person. Tell me what it's like to be this category of person. When in reality, mm -hmm. what I'm asking is like, how do you personally experience this? Not how does everybody who is in this category experience this? Like what has been your experience? And I find I will use in, I will usually share like, Oh, that's your version of experiences. Here is my version of experiences. And I find that there is a, by asking them to be vulnerable, it creates and by, by offering information myself, it creates an environment in which everyone feels a lot more comfortable to be able to be open and comfortable with each other. And it also show it, it's a really a safe space you're creating with between two people. And I think it creates a closeness because I think a lot of people don't ask those questions, but I think a a lot of people, if when given the opportunity, certainly not everyone, which is okay. But I think in my experience, a lot of people are, are interested to talk about those things in their lives because they simply haven't had the opportunity to talk about them with other people in a not like in a judgment free environment where the other person is genuinely interested in finding out what their experience of life has been. So I don't know if that would fit the the bill but it's what comes to mind when i think about when i have tried to when i've needed to show empathy or sorry rather show vulnerability with someone in order to try and promote an environment and culture of empathy absolutely so i think your example of the story plus what you're speaking about in terms of inquiring with your friends is actually a really great um comparison because in the story, we have someone that is trying to cultivate empathy by basically by forcing it, by 
forcing them to experience the struggles that other people have experienced. Now, this is my opinion, but as a disabled person, a woman, a black woman, a mixed person, and a queer person, I don't want you to cosplay my struggle. <laughs> like, I don't want you to suffer in order to assume that you are somehow accessing the thing, the suffering that I experience, because suffering is different regardless. You're no two people have that same experience. We only have similar experiences. And again, I'm not, this is not passing judgment on the book or even on the character, because I think that a, one of my major points in even doing this project is that, and we said this a little bit in episode one, is that as a species, we have an enormous capacity for empathy, but as a society, we suck at it. And it's been so long that people have been actively discouraged, especially men, mm-hmm. from any display or discussion of emotion that most adults with children are not well equipped to teach those skills to their children. And so emotional neglect or manipulation from a parent is unfortunately incredibly common. And I think a lot of people might not even recognize when that's happening. It was something that I, as someone who was very young when my parents divorced, they were also younger than I am now. So the idea that they were going to have their shit a hundred percent together just because they're grownups with kids is something that only kids get to believe in. So, you know, there were things that were not the best for me, but do I think that they did the best they could with the information they had at the time? Absolutely. So it's, I think one of the good things about empathic communication and empathy in general is that the more you practice it, the better you get. And you can make space for saying, man, I really pissed off that my parents got divorced at such a young age and put me through the ringer. But also, I love my parents and they were not good for each other. And I'm glad that they are living happy, separate lives. So, Mm. contrasting that with what you were saying about inquiring with your friends, I think that's a perfect example of what an ally can do to be first of all, to communicate empathically, you say, you know, here's my experience. Here's the emotions that I felt about it. How was your experience? What was your experience? Like, I want to know from your point of view. And I think when you get very specific too, that helps a lot because you know, when you're specific, the other person knows that you're not trying to just make a generalization about some identity that they represent. You really want to know about their lived experience. And for the most part, in my experience, people love talking about their life. People want people to be interested in their lives and and what their life is like. And people who are a part of marginalized groups really do want opportunities to vent to somebody who gives a shit every once in a while. So, yeah, I've absolutely been there. You'll see me talking shit about academia on Twitter all the time because... I feel like I need a space to be able to say that stuff. So yeah, I think Mm -hmm. 
That's a really valuable thing to do. I think just in general, and I know Jeremy's probably clear on all of this stuff, but just for the audience, definitely, you know, make sure it's contextually appropriate to the conversation that you're having. Don't Mm -hmm. just in the middle of eating a salad, be like, so how did you feel when George Floyd died? Huh? Navarre? Tell me everything you felt when George Floyd died. No. So not really. Don't do that. (laughs) But yeah. So you don't want to just like drop it on people like you're ambushing them, but also, you know, and also keep it specific. Like, don't say, you know, how did half black people feel when George Floyd died? Say, how did you feel, Navarre? This is how I felt. This is what I was doing. What were you doing? How did you feel? Did you do X? Did you do Y? But, and also, once they do start telling you, don't interrupt. Don't, which for me is fucking hard. I... (laughs) have ADHD, but I try very hard not to interrupt. And I try to, if I do interrupt, I try to catch myself and apologize and tell Mm. them to continue. Yeah. I just, just to add on to that from, from a, I mean, I guess an interview standpoint, but also just in general, like conversation when you're asking people, I, like everybody else, enter a lot of things when with somebody from a different culture or representation than I am, I have already preconceived ideas based on things that I've seen in media or other people that I've met prior. And what I always try to do is just let go of any of those expectations because nobody is like, no culture is a monolith and, and allow people to, to, shared their individual story like we're talking about like there's a lot of times you'll on my show you'll hear me be like oh you're from the south and like let's talk about that and then somebody would be like yeah it was actually pretty wonderful and where i grew up was actually nice and it's like holy shit i'm super surprised you know what i mean or other cultures where like you know we're 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 led to believe that this culture is very conservative and you know X, Y, and Z wouldn't even be possible and listening to people talk about their lives and how that really wasn't a factor for them. So it's like, I think it's important to just allow people to have that space and be genuine and showing that you're willing to give them that space that they, so that they're going to be more willing to talk about it. And not everybody Mm -hmm. is, there are definitely episodes I have that people don't share a ton of personal stuff and that's perfectly fine. But I think it's, yeah, it's, it really just depends on that specific person. And, and of course, like the vulnerability that you're showing them. So. Navarre, you seen Game of Thrones? The new one or the original? The original. Yes, I have. Okay, cool. To so, my joy and then sorrow. disappointment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I honestly think that the basic plot points would have been the same no matter what. They just rushed the fuck out of it. Um, yeah. All right. So I'm going to j- jump back in in five, four, Three, two, one. All right. So we were talking about Brene Brown and empathy and the vulnerability that's required to get into empathy. So she also, after she first started studying this, she identified what she thought was the biggest sort of impediment to empathy. She describes shame as sitting at the bottom of a deep pit. Sympathy, she says, 
is seeing someone in that pit standing at the edge and observing how very bad it is to be in that pit that you would not like to be in that pit and then moving on sort of like sucks to be you. Yeah. Uh, empathy is climbing down into the pit and keeping company, no matter how frightened you are of what might be down there. And empathy is operationalized when the giver shares their knowledge of pit life with the receiver. So basically, all right. It really sucks to have parents who are not super emotionally intelligent. I have parents who have displayed a lack of emotional intelligence. So let me climb down here in this pit and we can talk about it, what it's like to have parents that we wish were just a little bit more empathic. I love you, mom and dad. So by making things a little bit harder for themselves, the person climbing into that pit makes things a little easier for the other person without empathy things can get dark really quickly brown explains that we are dangerous when we are in shame and that we need to get back on our emotional feet before we can responsibly engage in the world around us she cites medical studies that point out the ways in which we experience shame as trauma it hijacks the limbic system which is i feel like jeremy you would know more about this than i do do you know can you give a quick summary of what the limbic system does or not? No. When I think of it, I think of Disco Elysium. <laughs> okay. All right. The limbic so, system is a character in that game. But I just looked it up. It's the part of the brain evolved in our behavioral and emotional responses, especially when it, becomes, when it comes to behaviors we need for survival, such as feeding, reproduction, caring for our young, and fight or flight responses. That's from the, the article, The Limbic System from the Queensland Brain Institute. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're a great teaching assistant. <laughs> so, as hypersocial animals, perhaps the most social animals, we can't survive without love. If we do not maintain loving relationships with others, if we do not have other humans who care about our well-being, who are willing to clothe and feed us and help us through sickness and protect us from danger, we will die. The psychological experience of this is such that we consider it a cruel and unusual punishment to even the most abhorrent criminals. For example, solitary confinement. Over time, even in small doses, rejection and isolation can trigger aggressive or self-destructive behavior like self-medicating, domestic violence, and amplifications, amplifications of the thing for which they've been shamed. So often people who have addictions, the more they get shamed for their addiction, the more they participate in it. The tropes that suffuse our media contain kernels of truth. A person bullied for their weight might turn to stress eating, or worse, eating disorders. A son repeats the violence that, is visited, that his father visited upon his mother. A child teased for their struggles making friends self-isolates to prevent further pain. And now, for an example from popular culture. Cersei Lannister, played by Lena Headey in HBO's Game of Thrones, gives a masterclass on this point. Throughout the course of whatever season that was, I don't remember, the Queen Mother finds herself in a power struggle over the capital city with an extremist, ascetic, religious cult. Season six. Sweet. Thank you. Girded on by disgust at Cersei's opulence, lifestyle, apathy, and sexual habits, the High Sparrow has his, quote-unquote, faith militant arrest her and lock her in a barren cell within the nooks and crannies of the church. After months of isolation and abuse, forced humility, bodily mutilation, and near starvation, Cersei capitulates to the infamous Walk of Shame, in which she is paraded through the city naked and unwashed. 
A small cadre of nuns walks beside her, but only to ensure that she keeps moving forward. They do not defend her from the massive crowd spitting, screaming, throwing stones and rotten vegetables, and urinating on her as she passes them by. The only help they give is to clear her path forward by force of will, bodily force, and sheer volume. As she walks, the nun in front of her clings an iron bell the size of a man's head. She bellows, shame, shame, shame. She clangs the bell. She bellows, shame, shame, shame. She does not wait for Cersei to follow or even glance back. She is robotic and absolute in her faith of the righteousness of her actions. When Cersei finally makes it through the gates of her castle, she pushes away the family members who did not save her and the knights that did not defend her. Instead, she clings to Kyburn, the maester slash warlock, and the zombified reincarnation of her faithful bodyguard, both men who have facilitated her revenge in the past and will do in the future, starting with the mobs outside. She lashes out at the Faith Militant and the High Sparrow, manipulates them into exacting revenge on yet another enemy, and culminates the exercise by having them all incinerated in an explosion that destroyed the very court where she was due to stand trial. Cersei doesn't enjoy her revenge, however, spoiler alert, because her (laughs) son, whose wife was in the explosion, ends his life by self-defenestration. Defenestration is an awesome word that means to throw out a window. So yes, in that case, Tommen Baratheon slash Tommen Lannister ends up jumping out of the window because he is so upset that the Baylor Sept, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Sept of Baylor. It's a fucking fantastic scene if you haven't seen it. The music to that scene is incredible. But yes, so this is a case in which shame does not have the intended effect. Presumably, presumably the effect that they were going for is to shame Cersei into changing her behavior. Instead, Cersei doubles down on her behavior to the point of assassinating an entire group of people and self-sabotaging by murdering her son's wife. Um, Sir, I have a question. Yes, go for it. Based on what you just said, we don't have to actually get into this if you think it is way off base or just would lead us off track. But based on what you just said, back dur- around the time of the 2016 election, I remember we my cl- my drama school class watched a, uh, basically a documentary that talked about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and their histories and you know what had led them to this point. And I believe the opening scene of the documentary was the White House Correspondents' Dinner, during which Barack Obama just ripped Trump and just made fun of him. And it, and I've I've seen multiple sources since then pinpoint that as the moment that Donald Trump was like, you know what, I'm gonna run for president and I'm gonna do everything I can to win. And what you just described sounds. Eerily similar, not that I'm saying that Barack Obama should have shown huge amounts of empathy to Donald Trump necessarily, but it seems like a similar case of somebody being kind of mean to somebody, I guess getting dunked on at the White House Correspondents' Dinner when you were invited there, not the nicest experience for sure, and then that really coming to backfire for them and a lot of other people. 
theoretically. Obviously, there's a lot of other steps involved with this. You know, there are a lot mm-hmm. of other things that had to get in, come into place for that to happen. But it see, I have seen multiple sources pinpoint that as like the turning point for where Donald Trump put himself on the course to eventually becoming president, essentially. I, A, completely agree with that conclusion. And B, I do think it's a great example of what we were just talking about in which, so the key difference between shame and guilt is that whether or not you feel like you deserve it. So if Trump were able to laugh at himself a little bit, then what he experienced would have probably been closer to guilt. but. Because Trump, and I'm drawing this description from Mary Trump, who is a licensed psychologist and work is his niece, because Trump is a sociopath, he and a, oh, what do they call that? A narcissist, but it's a Mm. clinical narcissist. He's not super capable of understanding how his behavior makes other people feel. So if taking into account that he doesn't understand how his behavior around the birth certificate made everybody else feel, not on a like, like he might be able to say, Oh yeah, Mr. Trump, you pissed everybody off with that, but he doesn't, he can't internalize that to understand that how they're feeling towards him in a sense. I'm not a psychologist, so this is not me like diagnosing him. I'm just trying to give an explanation of how it relates to empathy. If you really want to understand this, I highly recommend Mary Trump's book about everything. I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but we'll figure it out. It's a really great book. It gives you all the context that you kind of need to understand what happened. But I will say that a major premise of this project and is it inside the gates of power or Mar-a-Lago? No. Okay. Hold on. Her too much and never enough. That's what it is, which is serendipitous because that's kind of what we're talking about is feeling like you're not enough. But I just wanted to say to, I think, I think it's interesting how this intersects with motivation. Because like you talked about with Trump, that being a motivating factor for him. I've seen too, like I've had shitty bosses, like people I would never, ever talk to again in my life. And the way that they treated me and other people affected me in a way of like, fuck you. And affected other people in a way of like, all right, I'm going to work harder. And I'm like, how did you get there? Because this person, Mm -hmm. I would like, none of what they just said to me makes me want to do anything for them. You know, mm. and so mm. yeah, I don't know how it, I don't know like it's, how that specifically if interacts, but it, it, there's clearly an, an intersection between the two. My mm. guess would be that one of them, the person who wants hmm, Roland Beck, if they had approached you in an empathic fashion and said, you know, this is how I'm feeling about the work that I'm getting from you. And I need to understand where the conflict is and how we can fix it, how we can approach it together to make it better, 
or at least how you can help me understand what it is that I'm missing here. Like if someone approached you that way, you'd probably be a lot more likely to help than if someone said, look, you're not fucking pulling your weight around here. I need you to fucking step it up. Yeah. Like this is not tolerable. This is not okay. Blah, blah, blah. And it's, again, it comes down to that. Do you feel like you deserve this or not? If you had been, you know, slacking off every day, taking a smoke break, whenever the, you feel felt like it coming into work drunk and hungover. And someone was like, listen, I need you to get your act together. Then you might feel guilty about it because you're like, actually you're kind of right. I have been a little bit of a shithead lately. Yeah. Or you might say, yeah, I've been struggling and here's why this thing that I didn't feel comfortable talking about, but I should let you know. And then that person can, shift and if they have an empathic response then there's somewhere good to go from there but if you it's it comes down to are you working your ass off and for some reason this person is not recognizing it and then they're giving you shit possibly in front of other people that's shaming are you being a shit and they're calling you out on it that's guilt mm-hmm. guilt is healthy it encourages us to change our behavior and to to make difference in our lives whereas shame like we've been discussing almost always backfires so i'm going to go a little bit further with the analysis of the cersei lannister thing and then i want to jump to talk about affect studies a little bit because something that jeremy said made me think about it and it was you know what no let's back it up I want to talk a little bit more about the Trump thing. So another, the aspect of affect studies that I wanted to bring into this is the idea that I think is most fundamental to affect studies. First, let me explain what affect is. Affect spelled with an A, not an E is basically emotions on a social scale. So an emotion is to a person as affect is to a community or group. A person has an emotion, a group has affect. You can also sometimes use the word affect to describe the sort of feeling that you don't have words for yet. So if I am, or like a general group of feelings. So let's say like, I think earlier I said something like that must have been some very negative aspect in or affect in regards to the the child whose father didn't speak to them but yeah so you could have Mm. you know positive affect is anything like joy excitement mirth like the difference between nostalgia and ennui is like nostalgia can sometimes be a positive affect whereas ennui is usually a negative affect it's like you're longing for something and then you can have an affect that's like high activation like excitement exuberance or you can have an affect that's low activation like contentment serenity so those are positive and then the scale you, you can think of it as a, a scale with an x axis from low activity to high activity and then y-axis from negative affect to positive affect and then right in the middle you just have absolute neutrality not necessarily apathy because that would mean that you're not feeling anything but yeah so 
I will keep going a little bit on this. How is affect studies related to empathy? Affect affects people. It is a nouned verb. So it the things that affect you, emotions that affect you are affect. Most important thing, getting back to that. Affect is sticky. It attaches to people, places, and things, even symbolic things. So when, for example, I have a poster on my wall that I was showing off to the guys before we started recording today. And it is a poster that is a piece of fan art depicting the three protagonists from Hidden Figures and the film from, I believe, 2018. And to me, it is sticky with positive affect because A, I really loved that movie. I love Janelle Monet. I loved just the style of the fan art. I like space. So all of those things have positive affect for me. And then once they're swirled together, that affect, you can kind of imagine it as like globs of jello coming together and like a positive affect orb. And it sticks to this. So now whenever I see it, it gives off positive affect to me. And I think a lot of people who collect can be familiar with the idea of things that have a sort of stickiness of affect or an affect aura, like a favorite t-shirt, like a lucky token, those kinds of things. Maybe Navarre, you got any examples of something in your life that has some affect attached to it? I've never been much of an item person personally mm-hmm. uh, but it there's be, definitely it like, doesn't have to be an item yeah there's be. definitely a lot of music like specific songs mm-hmm. that take me to a place or that just give me like a rush of endorphins you know mm-hmm. yeah 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 mostly music well, here's a, an example that might give you some ideas whenever i see interracial couples or young mixed race girls in public it gives me a little shot of positive affect because Mm. i like to see myself i like to see what is different from when i was a little girl and i was the only one of me and so it it's a phenomenon that has a positive affect attached to it for example yeah yeah i mean i yeah definitely like young young black kids that have joy is always a thing for sure and like i definitely get this a lot from representation in media Mm -hmm. like especially when it's representation that i can share with my kids like i like when Mm. we when sea beast came out i was like this is amazing like Mm. you know i could show my my daughters like look this little girl looks like you and that was such an amazing feeling so yeah i recall correctly that you are at least partially Latin Latinx. I am not. No, I just live ah. in, I live in New Mexico. So I've okay. basically, I've grown up here. So like, while it's not specifically my culture, it's a big part of my culture. And my wife is mixed okay. Latina. So what I'm remembering then is that your children are at least partially. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to, cause what is, I was going to ask is, did you guys enjoy Encanto? Oh How did God. you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Were there any particular moments that your kids really felt like close to? I mean, they love the whole thing. Like they're all super young. They're all still toddlers, but yeah, the music specifically is something that they all really, really love. 
outside of that, it's tough. Yeah, because of, because of their yeah. age, I think they're still like have a. How about you or your wife? For us, I mean, yeah, I. I'm trying to think. You know, the I love Encanto to be specific. Mm-hmm, me too. I do. It's hard because what I do now, I've talked to so many people and about uh, a lot of yeah. media critically, and so like what, the thing that I noticed was like, it's funny that like the one woman who presents as like a black Latino woman is the one person that nobody listens to and literally could tell everybody like, here's like, yeah. we don't have to go through this whole plot. I know where he is. And Loris, yes. yeah. And so mm-hmm. like, you know, just a reflection of, of the fact that many people don't listen to black women, I think like was the mm-hmm. thing that stuck out to me. And so it's funny, like, I don't know, funny might not be the right word, but it's interesting to see how, even when we're not trying to, like, I don't think that was, Lin-Manuel Miranda's intention. I think that Mm -hmm. it's interesting to see how these things subconsciously play out in media and, you know, and Lord of the Rings, the new Lord of the Rings movie or show has that, has Mm -hmm. very similar things that I think, unless you're a marginalized person or like very in touch with this, you might not catch. Yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting because you don't necessarily have to write that in with intent for it to come up because it's like if you just are writing from lived experience if you've either done your research or you have someone in the room having somebody in the room is preferable Mm -hmm. but and you just write from that experience you're bound to end up bringing up themes from that person's lived experience it's just how that works attention wizards of the coast Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think for me, the song in Encanto that just like utterly destroyed me the first time I heard it was Surface Pressure, because I am the oldest child. And with divorced parents, my brother was four when my parents got divorced. So it was very much like me being the one that had to forge the path and like be the intrepid adventurer and like confront my parents when they were being weird and make sure that the story that my dad's not supposed to hear doesn't get heard by my dad or accidentally muttered by my brother and vice versa and all of that stuff. So yeah, surface pressure was a big one for me. Yeah. So this is an interesting point. Just one last thing on Encanto. My wife and I we were talking like, as cause we watched it. I've seen it no less than 40 times. And <laughs> we were talking about what is Mirabelle's, superpower and i like half jokingly said it's empathy and do i was curious if you agreed with that i 100 percent agree with you it so here's my unpopular opinion i hate the way it ends yeah because what essentially happens is everybody dumps all of their emotional labor on mirabelle and mirabelle's power is it's not something that she gets to enjoy. It's, it's the power to do the emotional labor for the entire freaking family. And having been in that position myself, it's, it sucks. It's every, you need someone. It sucks to be the most empathic person in the room sometimes Mm -hmm. because there is no one there for you. There is a storyline about this in Steven Universe, but it's way, way, way down the line from where you guys are at. So 
we probably won't get to discuss it, but if there are more episodes of this show in the future past our starting 10, maybe we'll come back to it one day. But yeah, I think that what happens is that the much more theoretically emotionally mature adult ends up being taken care of by the teenager who just happens to have a gift for empathy. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a toxic message. In my opinion, it makes me really sad for the Mirabelle and people's families and Mm -hmm. them not being able to get that same emotional labor from the other members of their family. I also think that basically the, the the film ends in the same place that it started with a family full of people who are relying on one very young individual to manage their emotional health. And then just in general, everybody got their powers back. Yeah. Everybody's going to go back to doing what they were doing. The house is back the way it was. Everything's fine now the conditions are perfect for them to forget that any of this shit ever happened and just go back to the, their previous pattern. So yeah, as both a storyteller and an empathy researcher, I loved the first 90. How, how long is the movie? If the movie's 90 minutes long, I loved the first 80 minutes. That's probably about right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, we have maybe about 20 minutes left. Poor Mr. Cobb is really struggling to figure out modern plumbing. So I did want to say one more thing about affect is that it can also cause spirals. So the size of a group, the intensity of the emotion, the degree of activation. So whether it's more like I'm content or more like I'm exuberant, other variables, all of those can cause affect to spiral and get into a positive and or negative feedback loop. But just to be clear, a positive feedback loop is where the thing gets bigger and bigger. And a negative feedback loop is where the thing gets smaller and smaller. It doesn't necessarily have a value associated with it. So if it's a positive feedback loop, it could also be a positive feedback loop of fear, for example, where the more, people are afraid, the more afraid they get. Hmm. Conversely, I'm not going to think of a great example of a negative feedback loop right now. So unless one of you guys has one, I'll just move forward. Feedback is where it gets smaller and smaller, you said? Yep. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. Basically, anything that would, I guess, belittle the issues of another group, perhaps, like perhaps Mm -hmm. a marginalized community. Certainly, there are echo chambers that I have existed around where the experiences, the negative experiences of a group that this, that the, the in group does not like are basically belittled to the point where they're not even really a consideration. And many people don't even see them as valid Mm -hmm. experiences. I think that could maybe be an example of what you're talking about. I think it could be, I think there might be more than one kind in there because i think the Mm -hmm. in this sense we're thinking about the emotion involved so i would say that there's like a positive feedback loop of of sort of we'll just say hatred for now although that might not be the best word bigotry i think is a very appropriate sure yeah we'll say literally word Mm -hmm. positive feedback of bigotry that gets 
bigger and louder and more intense the more people participate. And then there's also the sort of negative feedback of the actual conversation where the more people try to talk about it, the less acceptable it is to talk about it. Uh, so, yeah, by by putting more input, you get less output. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. All right. So I'm going to move on to talk about the intersection between fandom and affect. So in this is a little bit of me going out on a limb as a scholar and doing some theorizing. It is based on some other stuff from other scholars, but I am sort of self-defining in this moment. So fandoms are shared affinity groups united by a common affect toward a given object or symbol. The affect can be positive or negative, or I theoretically it could be neutral, though I would be hard-pressed to find a neutral fandom, because fandom usually has a some kind of activation or positive or negative valence to it. But I leave the field open for the possibility of neutral fandom. So a negative affect toward an object might be an anti-fandom. The Lincoln Project is basically an anti-Donald Trump Republican anti-Donald Trump fandom. They do stuff to make ads against Trump. They're not necessarily in support of Democrats or all Democrats, but they don't like Trump. You might also hear them referred to as rhinos by Trump supporters. Rhino meaning Republican in name only. A a more general pop culture example might be Mac versus PC. You, Mm. if you like Macs, there was a time if you like Macs, you hated PCs, and if you like PCs, you hated Macs. Mid to late 2000s culture. Exactly. The commercials <laughs> yeah. were good. Then you can think of mainstream fandoms as generally positive affect, music, celebrities, sports, fashion, religion, political affiliation, school. MCU versus um, DCEU. Absolutely. <laughs> Are there um, fans of the DCEU? Bro, I see too many of them on Should Facebook. Should there be? <laughs> yeah, they're probably <laughs> I'm just being, um, I'm sorry. With with the <laughs> careful carve out of the first Wonder Woman movie, which was pretty damn good. Mm. Yeah, there's like three movies in that series that people like. It's like that, The Suicide Squad, mm-hmm. and then... Not Suicide Squad, but Shazam. The Suicide Squad. Yeah, The Suicide Squad, and then I think Shazam mm-hmm. is the third one that people... I haven't seen are. Shazam, but if it's on par with those other two, then I should probably give it a check. Yeah, it's a cute, fun movie. Um, yeah. So some less mainstream fandoms that are fanish, although this, again, I've been writing this project for a while and these are change over time, but speculative fiction, science and mathematics, superheroes, comics, video games, computers in general, Linux, for example, like I know there are a lot of people who insist that Linux is the best operating system out there while most of us can't figure out how to use it, but uh, no judgment, just Hey, yeah, Linux, if that's for you, go for it. And then some more unconventional fandoms to sort of expand your way of thinking about it. Academic fields. Sociology, in a sense, has a fandom. The study of quantum physics has a fandom that is con- consists both of the people that are actually doing the work and the people, and I don't want that to sound like a judgment on spectators as if they're not doing any work, but both the sort of the scientists who are doing quantum physics research every day 
the people who report on it, the people who are interested in hearing those reports, the people who are talking about it over beer in their backyard, you know, all of that constitutes a fandom. I don't know if constitutes is a word, but it is now. Toots. Yeah, that's the one. Another good one is dog breeds. I am a fan of dog breeds in general, and I'm specifically a fan of corgis. There's an event called SoCal Corgi Beach Day that's pretty well known on the internet that I got to go to a couple times. Super fun, big, just think of a convention, but corgis. Another good one. Yeah, pretty much. That's pretty much what it is. Another one you might not think of, sommeliers, wine fans, wine fandom. You know, it's basically a framework for studying a group of people based on a shared emotional investment. And so and when I say a framework, I want to be clear that just because I'm using the framework to describe something doesn't mean that's the only way it can be seen or that it should make somebody feel. I would hope that it wouldn't make people feel that it is belittling of their the thing to which they have an affection. So to say that a religion is a type of fandom is to me a way of explaining that fandom studies can be used to study any kind of group with a shared emotional component. So, Mm. you know, most people who participate actively in religious activities are have some kind of an emotional attachment. Usually it's positive. Sometimes it's negative Jewish and Catholic friendos we get to talk about guilt all the time Uh, yeah so let's move on from that and i think there is an aspect of this in which i you know go a little bit into describing what's the point of talking about fandom in conjunction with politics or the civic and social environment so civic just meaning the sort of your legal and governmental aspects of society. So participating in things like community organizing or a neighborhood watch, although neighborhood watches in general, not a fan, but just sort of communal participation, Mm. raising money for charity, doing a cancer walk, stuff like that. I have a Um, a question. Yeah, Um, go for it. In regard, I know that like a lot of the groups that you are talking about, you are essentially relating to fandom. I do not dispute at all that you can easily pinpoint a whole lot of different aspects of all of those groups and basically say this is functioning like a fandom. But in my mind, and I think I think that I may have even experienced this. I think certainly for religion, if you were to describe most religious people as fans of their particular religion, they might take that somewhat personally because I think the word fan in our popular culture has like connotations of, I think, a certain frivolity maybe or insincerity or I, I don't know. It's I think a lot of people would say, oh, certainly when growing up, they would be like, well, my dedication to God is much more than a person's dedication to probably one of the biggest fandoms currently today is Star Wars, for example, mm-hmm. uh, so, which is sometimes questionable. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I some know Wars. where I'm going to go with this, and that is that, A, I would absolutely understand it, and I would encourage them to withhold judgment on other types of fandoms and say, yeah, you're religion is extremely important to you first caveat the word fan comes from the word fanatic in the first place Mm -hmm. so a 
the association with religion is extremely apt but b fans in general until honestly like the last decade have always been pathologized for those unfamiliar with the word it made to seem as though they have mental health issues seen as you know there was a long period of time when William Shatner, every time he had an interaction with a fan, he made, he was talking down to them and he was kind of being a jerk about it. But the, I would say that to some people, a fandom can be as important to them as a religion and that it gives them opportunities to form community. It gives them opportunities to go on pilgrimages. It structures it gives you a set of stories by which to help interrogate your own morality and to learn about the experiences of people other than yourself. Especially a lot of people will talk about how modern superhero stories are of the same vein as classic mythology and polytheistic religions. I would also say, you know, while individually, it might be extremely important and an extremely big part of your life religion. There are a lot of people who participate in religion in a much more casual fashion. So in, in Catholicism, we used to call them priesters, Christmas and Easter, the people who only go to church on Christmas and Easter. Mm -hmm. And it's like, without passing judgment, there's nothing wrong with that. Especially the thing that drove me wild as a kid was that they would preach that God was everywhere and that you could worship God anywhere. And, but then they would also insist that you came to church at the exact same time every Sunday. So I was like, what's the deal with that guys? What if I just want to, you know, worship God in a forest with a Creek where I feel closest to them. But yeah. So I would say there's all kinds of different ways to experience religion and there's all kinds of different ways to experience fandom and what makes it, worth studying in this way partly is that the first i think it lends weight to fandom and i think it gives a new perspective on studying religion and it can do in that way for lots of things i think it's most important when we compare fandom to modern political trends so i would describe bernie bros for example as a fandom. And when we start thinking about depictions of toxic fandom today, and we look at some of the things that happened with Bernie bros or any other candidates, affiliation, affiliation group, like, like I said, there's a wide variety of how people interact with fandom, but there are some fanish behaviors that we saw among the Sanders crowd that and i'm sure also with the trump crowd and the clinton crowd that in fandom studies we already have vocabulary for and that taking that new frame on it gives us a new lens for looking at it so the just some topics on politics and fandom there is factionalization within fandoms so you'll get sort of like i know a big one that is really problematic right now and has been for a while, is Raylo shippers within the Star Wars sequels fandom. There is a lot of uh, contention between Raylo shippers, those who want 
Kylo Ren, Kylo Ren and Ray Skywalker to be in a relationship. And then Ray shippers who want Finn FN2187 and Ray to be in a relationship. And there's a lot of also factionalization over the way that Finn was handled in that trilogy, especially for people of color. And so just to get through all of these real quickly, racism, sexism, homophobia, other isms in fandom is a political aspect. Politics of representation. I touch on that in my piece about cross-racial cosplay. And then political celebrities and celebrity politicians. So Schwarzenegger, Trump, Reagan. Was it Reagan or Nixon that was an actor? Reagan. Reagan. Okay. Or celebrities who get political. Cardi B, for example, I know was getting really political about rent and wealth inequality and stuff like that. Chris Evans did a whole website and organization where he was trying to get just people to come on and explain political concepts without too much factionalization, Mm. uh, all kinds of things like that. So we are close to finishing on this episode. Let me just, well, first let me ask you guys if you have any questions about that stuff. And if you have any insights or personal stories about how empathy or affect have interacted with your fandoms. Mm. I I have one, but you know, you go first. Okay. I was just going to say that when I think a lot of times engaging in fandoms, the affect that I have is that I no longer want to engage in fandoms because I like, I think anytime you can have like a truly genuine objective conversation with somebody about a thing that you enjoy and you may disagree on certain points or whatever, but that's fine. Like, but it doesn't come to, vitriol then i'm good let's have that conversation but i think a lot of times like i will actively avoid having like a conversation on twitter about a certain thing most of the time or jumping into a group of like people who are very much like huge fans of a certain thing because i think when it gets to that level it just becomes so i'm trying to find the right word for this it's almost like you it's like you can't change somebody's opinion at that point. It seems like, Dogmatic. and so there's like, yeah, exactly, yeah. And so it just becomes a thing of like, I don't even know how I can have this discussion with you unless like I agree on the thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, or politics. So I think it's like mm-hmm. in those situations, I really it, it makes me pull out of it sometimes in that way because I like I'm fine with you change something in a movie that was different in a book or you know like this character wasn't supposed to look this way or whatever. Like, yeah, they hired a good actor. I don't know why they don't have green eyes. I'm sorry. Like legless changed his eye color 40 times in the filming of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. So, you know, but I think it's, but some people just can't disassociate from that. They have to like, it's, they don't understand why it's not the way that they expected it or whatever. And, uh, at least in fandoms, like that's what has always been difficult for me personally when it comes to fandoms is that I'm not an extreme person and I just, I don't understand it. So Mm. affect is sticky. All that negative affect swirling around in there. You don't want it to stick to you. You self protect. It makes sense. Yeah. I've definitely been in situations where after a long, like back and forth on something like that in fandom, I have to just take a break and walk away and go do something 
that is either mindfulness or that brings me positive affect. Often it's going outside. I mean, but I won't yeah. say which one it is because all three of us have dealt with this recently, but we've all dealt with something recently where we've been like, hmm, I think I'm going to step back for a second. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely no judgment on that because yeah. it's like you can only you can only handle the amount that you can handle at any given time. And it's like it's not worth your personal mental health or emotional yeah. health or even physical health because we did talk about how chronic stress can make you vulnerable to a lot of situations. And I think mm. that's a great illustration of why we're even doing this is because the more we can hopefully teach people about empathy and, and expand people's understanding of it and empathic communication Hopefully, the more we can have these conversations without all the vitriol. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, did you have an example? Yes. First of all, I'd like to second what Navar said. I enjoy engaging with fandoms in the sense that I like celebrating things and mm-hmm. talking about them, like analyzing them, being like, oh, did you see this? Did you see that? But when things start to, it's it, not that no one can be negative, but when it I start, people start to make criticisms that make me feel genuinely like, like oh i don't i don't feel good about this and not even just like oh hey this work has fundamental issues Mm -hmm. like for example in light of what jk rowling has been saying recently there's been kind of a re-examination of harry potter books and a lot of people have been pointing out some i think very clear flaws in terms of how those books deal with diversity and issues of various phobias i think is is absolutely a valid series of very valid criticisms but sometimes there will be like Okay, well, as an example, I'm not part of the Critical Role fandom, but some, t- some of the response to some of the recent plot twists in that series at the time of this recording have kind of made me go, Ugh. But I would also add another <laughs> example for me that is very recent is the death of Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth II, because I am a dual citizen. I I know people will say that I'm American and you are correct, but I am also British. And it's not like I have just never been to Britain. I've been going to coming to Britain every year since I was a baby. And I've lived in Britain now for like seven years. So I, when I, I, when Queen Elizabeth died, I wasn't like heartbroken or anything, but I, when I saw some of the responses, I kind of, especially specifically from Americans is where I started to get, mm-hmm. started to feel weird about it because I think, while I think that there are some extremely valid and necessary criticisms of a lot of what Queen Elizabeth stood for just by virtue of being part of the monarchy and things that were happening during her reign and things that she could have spoken up about or tried to influence that she really didn't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think it can be difficult if you're not a British person to understand the degree to which Queen Elizabeth felt like fundamental to the nation. Mm-hmm. It was like there, she really was in some ways like the mom of Britain. And, it, and she's and the longest even, reigning, isn't she? Yeah, the longest reigning monarch. Yes. And she does yearly addresses like it certainly not for everybody, but for a very large percentage of British people, including my own mother, who is British. And if we're talking about colonialism and issues with colonization and issues of stuff that happened in the Caribbean, my mother was born in Jamaica, came over at the tail end of the Windrush generation. Like that all is very relevant to her. But 
still she had like a strong attachment to the royal family and continues to have it. I haven't gotten a chance to speak with her about how she felt when Queen Elizabeth died, but I know that I'm pretty sure that when Prince Philip died, she cried. And it's like mm-hmm. she wasn't even like a huge she's not even a huge royalist fan or monarchist rather. But mm-hmm. It seemed like there was a lack of empathy, perhaps a lack of understanding of what, despite all of the terrible qualities or terrible things, the terrible things that we could say about Queen Elizabeth and the British monarchy, what that still meant to a lot of people, including some of the people who were negatively affected by it. And so while I think it's absolutely fine to say those things and and celebrate and whatever, if that's because, again, there were a lot of things that she stood for, I think certainly in some shared spaces that I saw where it's like, oh, there is a we know that there are British people here. And yet we as people who aren't from Britain and aren't even necessarily from a country or that was oppressed by the the British Empire are just going to storm in here and start celebrating the death of another person's monarch. And I'm like, yeah, I'd feel pretty weird if I was in like. I don't know if I was in the Czech Republic and the U.S. president had died and suddenly all the people there started celebrating Mm -hmm. like around me. I I feel super weird about that because even even if it was somebody like Donald Trump, who I'm in no way a fan of Donald Trump, it just feels odd to have for me to have somebody celebrating the death of my leader. So, quote unquote, politically, at least if. And again, not that I'm a Republican, more in the sense of like, he was technically the political leader Um, for the entire United States. But it feels weird to have people celebrating that. I'm going to go ahead and just. With me there, (laughs) without even like checking in to be like, hey, how do you feel about this? Considering that it affects me making them. And that's kind of what I saw. It's just never a good uh, look to be celebrating somebody's death. Some cases of like Americans and other foreigners who were not directly affected by the British Empire. Unless they personally victimized uh, you. Queen Elizabeth. I think it's it's not a great look. I think, particularly in the case of, of, well, I'll, I'll speak more generally, actually. I think one thing that it's easy for us to forget is that politicians and monarchs and people like that are still people. And it's worth having some empathy for the people that love them, mm-hmm. even if you can't see your way to loving that person yourself or even having empathy for that particular person, you can at least hopefully extend some empathy, for example, to, you know, like Henry, Prince Henry, he's got all as much reason as anyone to be frustrated and angry with her, but that's his grandmother and his mother died when he was so young you know, at least in my experience, people who grow up without a mother end up getting very attached to their grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it's kind of difficult. I also personally feel like it's healthier to cultivate empathy whenever possible for you, for yeah. the person who is giving empathy. It is healthier for you to be empathic than it is to hold on to feelings of negative affect, which isn't to say that you shouldn't experience them at all. And I'm not passing judgment on how anyone feels about it. I do think if you decide to celebrate somebody's death on a public social forum and you get judged for it, you maybe should have known better. But yeah, I think it's, it's rough. I think the next most comparable thing I have and 
this isn't meant to compare these two people, but just the social milieu after their passing. When Osama bin Laden died. Yeah. Um, same thing. Yeah. Everybody in the United States was celebrating. There were little kids. I remember I went to a subway, like a, not a subway. It was like a different kind of sub sandwich chain shop. And they had drawings that you could, you get crayons and you can draw around with them when you're, you know, eating and waiting for your meal. And some of them were just little kids crayon drawings celebrating the death of Osama bin Laden and to me, there was just, I absolutely understand why people feel the way they feel about it, why they are glad that he's no longer here, especially military families who maybe lost members of their family because of his actions. But mm -hmm. the idea of not only celebrating another human being's death, but encouraging children to celebrate it just feels like courting a sense of negativity and darkness. I'm also very superstitious. I play D and I'm very superstitious, and I oh, I also did theater, so that's probably more <laughs> the where it comes from. But um, I don't believe it's good to to mock death in general. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I am neither superstitious nor religious, but I do. I was thinking of that same example. And I think like what has come to mind a lot, what made me think of it, I'm a huge J. Cole fan. And mm. J. Cole, for those who may not know, I guess, is a is a rapper. And but he's yeah, so people obviously, you know, associate rappers with a certain thing. And in one of his songs, he talks about watching these two women celebrate after Osama bin Laden had been killed. And like his lyric is something like, he's like, well, what about thou shall not kill? And mm. I've, it just like, it made me think like, oh yeah, like that's a good point of like, you know, because I, I, I don't know. I mean, again, I, whatever my feelings are about America, I still live in this country and terrorism was obviously a big part of the things that we went through. And Osama bin Laden was a huge proponent of that so like but yeah but i i, I definitely didn't throw a party or anything like that i just it's a thing that happened and we go okay like mm -hmm. you know that story has closed hopefully you know power vacuums and whatnot i guess but you know it's just like it i don't know but it's just like yeah i i personally wouldn't celebrate somebody's death publicly like that yeah but yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not passing judgment on other I people either. I just to apply. You, you, I just like think like you. You always have the option not to say anything too. Like you could just you just not say anything. Mm -hmm. So but not yeah, to tell people think, to shut up, but you. I'm just saying that, that that is an option in the book too. You don't have to tweet that. <laughs> and I think it's a uh, to imply some terms from what we've learned today. I'll say that like it's possible to have the same sort of positive or negative reaction, but at a much lower activation than other people. So for example, I felt, we'll say slightly positive that Osama bin Laden was gone, not necessarily that he died, but that he was gone and no longer a threat. And that also that it would reflect well on Barack Obama for 
addressing a major political concern. That said, my activation level was like two, and some people were activated to the level of like 150. Mm-hmm. So when I say I felt positive, it's only because I wasn't like actively mourning his death or something like that. It's over um, 9,000. Over 9,000. <laughs> oh my God. I'm going to talk about that again in the Steven Universe episode a little bit, but <laughs> actually, no, I'm not. Basically, in the Steven Universe video game, all of the Crystal Gems powers start at 9,000 so that when you start playing, their power levels are over 9,000. Nice. Uh, I just, because I don't want to leave this for the next episode, and we have had some little rough bumps that hopefully will get edited out, I'm going to read one more section about the public sphere. No one, no one, no person... (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. no. (laughs) We love each other here. Um, Fuck you, Jeremy Cobb. (laughs) Fuck all of you guys. I hate you all. You all get in detention. Come and throw eggs at your house. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to read one more little bit. We'll see if we can have a short discussion about it, just because I don't want to leave this for the next episode in which we are going to shift topics a little bit. So, Nancy Fraser, who we were talking about earlier in conversation with Brene Brown, breaks down the Habermasian framing of the public sphere. Um, Habermas, Jürgen Habermas, German, I believe, philosopher, and is famous for the idea that the public sphere is constituted through speech acts of a particular kind and source. So obviously this was a older white man writing in the, I think, mid 20th century, if not late 19th century, early to mid 20th century. And therefore, you know, his politics are maybe not what ours would be today. So his sort of designation of who speaks and what kinds of speech count are, that's what I'm referring to when I say that we need to complicate it a little bit. We may need to make it a little bit more complicated, a little bit more nuanced. So Nancy Fraser analyzed the ways that his writing is tied in to a conceptualization of affiliation or overlap with the nation state. So basically in Habermas's version of things, you get to speak if you're a citizen Mm. or if you're a member, a recognized member of the community, if not, you don't have a voice and you're not a part of the public sphere. At the same time, Fraser examines the ways in which that version of the public sphere depends upon a universal and equally accessible language within which all discourse is conducted. Conversely, without access to the language of public discourse, the individual is stripped of agency and excluded from the consideration of the police. The police, not P-O-L-I-C-E, P-O-L-I-S, as in the population, the group, the people. Like when you hear the term vox populi, police is the singular. And... So she puts this theory in a crucible and burns away what's no longer useful and arrives at the core. Quote, a public sphere is conceived as a space for the communicative generation of public opinion and as a vehicle for marshalling public opinion as a political force. But as she makes clear, that sphere can only be equal and critical insofar as those participating in it have equal access and that their concerns are treated equally. Because the public sphere is the medium through which political power is accumulated and leveraged, exclusion from the public sphere is exclusion from the domain of quote-unquote human rights. For example, in America, immigrants, 
the currently and formerly incarcerated and others who do not have the right to vote live in an almost purgatorial, so like purgatory, precarity, precariousness, without access to the realm of electoral politics, at least overtly. On a smaller scale, a child without say in family decision-making is at the whim of their parent or parents, however well or poorly those parents treat them. Only intervention from another parental figure, a temporary surrogate, can remove them from the situation. Here is where I believe empathy can make the most significant intervention. In empathy, we have a language that is nearly universally accessible, transcending ethnicity, skin color, class, caste, gender, sexuality, and even species. While we do not all experience or process these emotions the same way, and there are endless variations to the ways they can be patterned and expressed, they nonetheless seem to stay true to a core meaning while transversing great distances and differences. Since our emotions exist always in relation, if only to ourselves, there is always a conversation of feeling. As I become aware of your emotions, my emotions change and shift in response. One laughs or cries harder as the size of the audience grows larger. In my personal experience, I recall the way my heart broke as I watched my father, his brothers, and their sons grieve over my grandmother, our family matriarch. I also remember luxuriating in the pride and joy of my fellow company members, our crew, and our audience after my first successful Cirque de Cay production. Cirque de Cay was the college circus club that I formed in undergrad. I lingered as the auditorium emptied, but the aura of positive affect remained. Again, affect is sticky. It's stuck to the, there were, were enough people generating the same affect that the affect lingered in that space for a little while and I could still perceive it. In interspecies interactions, we've proven time and again how vital it is to listen and respond to animal affects. Whether it's Temple Grandin's research and innovation on the animal's experience of everyday life and ultimate death for the meat industry, or Jane Goodall's research on chimpanzee social life and cohabitation, or Dmitry Believ and Ludmilla Trask's study of the genetic, phenotypical, and social characteristics mediated by the domestication process, they worked together to domesticate silver foxes, which are a melanated form of red foxes. And it's been going on long enough now that they have several generations of tame domesticated foxes. And when I say phenotypical characteristics, a lot of the foxes' coat patterns and things changed. They experienced a phenomenon called neoteny, which uh, is a description of something looking infant-like or childlike. And the sort of theory is that the more, especially in mammals, the more child and infant-like you look, the more vulnerable you look, the cuter you are, the better your evolutionary chances that some other member of your species or even some other member of your family, mammalia, will take care of you and help you survive. So let me find where I left off. And that's off. something that happens a lot in domesticated animals. Like For it's sure. a phenomenon that has been occurred in a lot of them where they suddenly all look a lot more juvenile than mm -hmm. their wild compatriots. And one of, actually, now that I think about it, another one, a benefit of neoteny is that your whites of your eyes get bigger in comparison to your irises and pupil, which makes it more easy, which makes it easier for you to follow someone's gaze. So if I can see the whites of your eyes, I can see where your eyes are pointing. 
I'm demonstrating for my friends, but you guys can't see it. But you can, I mean, just look in a mirror and look at the direction of your eyes and then try to watch where your cat or dog is looking or, and then if you have the opportunity, try to see if you can tell which way a squirrel is looking. Spoiler alert, you cannot. The So those types of evolutionary changes that happen along with domestication make it easier for us to communicate, easier for us to empathize, and easier for us to court relationships, social relationships. So... Numerous scholars in an infinite variety of fields have demonstrated that socialization between two individuals generally involves the same sorts of emotions, no matter how many claws, paws, or jaws eh, you might have. The caveat here, tackled in some detail by evolutionary anthropologists Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods in their book, The Genius of Dogs, How Dogs Are Smarter Than You Think, is that mammals and birds tend to demonstrate these similarities, while reptiles, amphibians, insects, and arthropods seem to be more apathetic. Domesticated animals in particular demonstrate much greater emotional synchrony and literacy than other animals. If you have a dog at home, try yawning in front of your dog and see if they get yawn contagion. Chances are, if your dog yawns, you will. But yawn contagion is, tends to be a really good indicator of empathy, but we still have no idea why. Watch uh, episode one of Luther. Content warning, okay. it's a detective show. So it's worth noting that an evolutionary explanation for this empathy drop-off dovetails really well with Brown's model of vulnerability and empathy in that greater vulnerability requires greater empathy. Excuse me. While reptiles and their compatriots reproduce in such a fashion that the young are nearly autonomous from birth, birds and mammals require a great deal of care. Some bird species only need enough emotional capacity to bond them to their clutch of eggs for the time it takes to hatch. Apes like us, on the other hand, give birth comparatively rarely and with greater difficulty to mostly singletons, so one child at a time, that requires as much as 20 plus years of constant emotional labor. The same can be said for our highly intelligent cousins like elephants, porpoises, whales, corvid, parrots, etc. Our cohabiting, co-working companions like horses, dogs, cats, rats, mice, pigeons, sparrows, and other intentionally or unintentionally domesticated animals are even better. To return to Dr. Fraser, almost wrapping up here, we realize how much bigger the public sphere becomes when the requirement to entry is not a capacity to speak or even think in a particular way, but a capacity to feel. There are obviously political forces that will shape judgments of right feeling and wrong feeling, good feeling and bad feeling, making it vulnerable to many of the same issues as speech. Nonetheless, to begin with sentience rather than intelligence would represent and require a massive paradigm shift. To center sentience as the source of agency pushes the public sphere to open like a flower blooms, making space for growth that could not have been contained in the previously narrow world. It stands to reason that there are a great deal of us that can feel and express pleasure and displeasure. That pleasure and displeasure can provide the foundation for, communi for communicative exchange and yet we often ignore it in favor of a medium more comfortable and in some cases easier to use. In any case, the conceptualization of an empathic public sphere strongly suggests that happiness and its pursuit are not exclusive to human experience. When we know that this is true, we must, in turn, acknowledge it. Any being that can feel happiness has a right to it. Empathy enables equity. So, thoughts on that, or 
general thoughts to wrap up the conversation? Yeah, I think it definitely it definitely puts it into perspective to think about it that way. And certainly empathy for myself has been something that has helped me better socialize, I think, than anything else. So as I talked about, I think in our last episode, for me, like social norms and things like that were very difficult. I grew up as a kid who wanted to be the smartest person in the room, but also wanted to have friends and, and also didn't always act in a socially normative way. And so I struggled with that a lot and learning empathy was a way that I was able to overcome that. And then I had a period of my life where I probably over empathized and and felt like I took too much on and then kind of had to learn like how to rationally deal with that you know what I mean but I think yeah in general like it's such it's something that has infinite benefits I think when it comes to stress and mental health and just learning like how to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and be vulnerable with them but also not like put yourself in a depressed state or a super difficult situation and understand like I can help this person, but I don't have to like become the thing that they're dealing with as well. And yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's lovely. I love, I love empathy as a topic. I'm the game that I'm working on. It's a, it's one of the mechanics. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I talk about empathy mechanics some in the rest of this series. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really do just enjoy it. And I think, yeah, it definitely can see it with, with other animals and, and creatures and stuff. So yeah, I'm, I love it. Any thoughts about empathy in the public sphere, empathy and non-humans, empathy and just your experiences or just anything you want to wrap up the conversation up? I think that in the public sphere, we're seeing, I think, a struggle to have empathy in a lot of cases. I think I think we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but like politically, I think some of a lot of the political decisions that we're seeing are in, in due to a lack of empathy. It's very clear that there are I think we talked about this last time, which was that capitalism is kind of an inherently unempathetic mm-hmm. economic system. So it Yes, exactly. Un- it's an apathetic an inherently apathetic economic system and therefore it will kind of breed a certain level of apathy or in some cases even animosity in people who are under that kind of a system for a long enough time and i think i there it what you're saying about animals what you mentioned earlier about animals recognizing when other animals are infants is or especially mammals is absolutely Mm -hmm. like that's that's something that I have observed as well. And this, the the empathy that some animals can show. I don't remember if we talked about it last time, but there's like a video of a leopard who was hunting a baboon. And when after she killed the baboon, she discovered the baboon had a baby and she was like, oh, no, and just took the baboon's baby with her. And I guess it was a young leopard, but was basically trying to take care of this baboon baby, even though she had initially intended to eat its mother. So. That even that shows how strong like parental instincts can be across mm-hmm. species uh, and how strong empathy can be. Where it's like, oh, no, it's a baby. I need to take care of it. I think mm-hmm. you could absolutely describe that as like a form of empathy. Like, oh, it's it's defenseless and young. It needs help. 
I yeah, I think that you and obviously people, anyone who owns like a dog, for example, will know that dogs will so often respond to your mood, respond to your body language. They are so keyed in with the signals that you're giving and will be constantly Mm -hmm. responding to that. Same thing with cats, though, in different ways, kind Mm -hmm. of with cats. But absolutely. I think that uh, speaking of dogs. His sense of empathy was showing showing him that we were about to wrap up, yeah. and yeah. he was he was excited that his mom was going to come spend some time with him again. That would be Ruby. Yeah, my bad. It's all good. It was apt um, timing. Yeah. Well, I just a couple things I want to draw out from what each of you guys said. I think this a it points to a couple different kinds of empathy again, in that like. There's the empathy of being able to feel what someone else is feeling, but there's also the empathy of being able to recognize and interpret another person's emotions. So, like, being able to sort of get an insight onto what other people are feeling and sort of respond appropriately to that, using it as a way to gather information about a particular topic and thinking through it. Like, how do I interact with this animal or is this animal predator or prey or something else entirely? And I think also there's a certain level of emotional intelligence associated with empathy that is about understanding your own emotional reaction to things and understanding why you're feeling what you're feeling in that moment. So we talked a little bit earlier about how shame can hijack your limbic system. Most emotions can hijack your cognitive cognitive can hijack your cognition in such a way that you're reacting without truly thinking through what you're doing. You're just reacting to the emotion that you're having in the moment. And I think a lot of the like vitriolic, angry, passionate discourse that we were kind of referring to earlier happens when folks realize that they, they don't realize that they're speaking out of a deep emotional place and that that emotion is preventing them from getting any distance or from allowing others to have their own emotional reactions as well. And I think one thing that I wanted to throw in there, a tip for communicating empathically in these kinds of situations is to always only describe what you feel and what you are feeling. Use I statements. I, when I saw it, this is how I felt about it, but your experience may have been different or in my experience, this happened or like from my perspective or what I'm hearing you say is X, Y, Z. And in that sense, you give your version of the story. You, you assert that your lived experience is important and valuable and belongs in the conversation, but you're also not negating anybody else's experience. You're not making a suggestion that anybody who disagrees with you is wrong in some way. You're just saying, you know, there's there's space for both there is space to both feel angry about the way that the british monarchy has wreaked havoc on the world and to feel sad that a major historical figure has passed or to feel sad that someone's grandmother passed you know um, those both exist and can exist in concert and sometimes it takes a high level of empathic capacity to be able to hold those things simultaneously cognitive dissonance we talked about that a little bit in relation to the idea of capitalism and empathy 
suspending cognitive dissonance, being able to sit with cognitive dissonance, the idea of two thoughts in your head being both true and conflicting with each other and, and needing a resolution. The more you have the capacity for empathy, the easier it becomes to hold both of those, those things simultaneously without trying to resolve them. And I think when we try to resolve them forcefully is when we get into these sorts of situations that turn into aggression, even if it's just verbal aggression or, and things like that. So in terms of the animal things, I will also say, you know, I think it, it begs a lot of questions about animal agency, about animal sentience and cognizance and all of that. It certainly enlivens a debate about veganism, vegetarianism, and all of that. I will say that I don't pass judgment on how people eat. I think we are animals and animals eat animals, and that is a thing. I think factory farming is bad. Moving on. The last thing I will say is that it provokes an interesting conversation about what other types of non-humans we might be able to use empathy to communicate with. So there's the idea that eventually, sooner or later, humans are going to encounter another species that can communicate directly with us, and maybe we're going to use empathy to do it. So, I think I am going to finish that up for a moment. I'm going to take a pause here. Like, Mm. specifically, if, do you want to feel how it feels? Do you want to know that doesn't hurt me? If it's, it's a, it's about the difficulty. I mean, most people interpret that song Mm. as being about the difficulty of Mm. a man and a woman who are in a relationship relating to each other and empathizing with each other, but the desire to do so because the lack of empathy in their relationship is causing them both huge amounts of pain and suffering. That also reminds me of another great song. I can't think of it, but keep talking and I will get back to it. Yeah, it's the whole, I mean, like even the it's you and me, like we won't be unhappy. The implication being like we won't be unhappy if we understand each other. Oh, what is it? See how deep the bullet lies, unaware that I'm tearing you asunder, but there's thunder mm-hmm. in our hearts. Yeah, it's the whole the, it's the whole thing. It's the whole it's the whole dang thing uh, is about seeking empathy in a relationship between two people. And literally trying to find divine intervention in order to provide it. Yeah, I think it reminds me a little bit of the song Just Give Me a Reason with Pink and mm. Nate Ruess from it's a good song. Fun. Oh, that one, yeah. Uh, it's a great song. And it's not exactly the same because I think this is like the opposite side of that same relationship in a sense. And that it's like they're saying, like, just give me a reason. Just a little bit's enough. We're not broken, just bent and we can learn to love again. And it's kind of a like, yeah, it, it's like you're trying to see eye to eye, but everything that all the assumptions that you're making about the other person's state of mind are wrong. And the rest of the song, you get kind of a story of like one of them is talking in their sleep and the other person thinks it's about them. And then one of them, you know, the person that was talking in their sleep is like, I don't even remember those dreams, dude. I was just talking in my sleep. Like, I don't, are you okay? What's going on? Like, we're not seeing eye to eye here. So, and, but like, ultimately the, the repeating theme is we can learn to love again. So it's like, I think it's a great, both of those, tunes are like a great example of how important empathic intuition can be in relationships and also just recognizing that you don't know what you don't know don't make up trouble for yourself you know it could 
just ask. It could be something completely harmless. But yeah, was there more you wanted to say about running up that hill? You just want to sing running up that hill for a minute? No, just that it was, it seemed very relevant to the topic. Yeah. And I could talk about the production side of it from like a musical thing, but that's, that's not really what this is about. If it has something to do with empathy, then I'm all ears. <laughs> Sadly, no, it's just a great, I, it's a great song. Mm. There's, I could go on for a long time about that song and the album that it's on in that period in Kate Bush's career. Mm. Someday we will talk about the way music solicits emotions and what kinds of musical mechanical things in writing music can solicit what kinds of emotions. Cause I think that's fascinating. And I, there's a particular, I think it's the F chord on the ukulele that I call the Rebecca sugar chord because a bunch of her songs end on that note. And it's so, it's got such a specific feel to it that I just think of it as the sugar chord. Well, I think on that note, huh? See what I did there? We're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. Our next episode will feature one of the three chapters, who knows which one it will be, about either empathy as a mechanic in TTRPGs, tabletop role-playing games, empathy as a superpower and a leadership skill in the series Steven Universe, and empathy as an genre and ontology ontology meaning way of being in afrofuturism so stay tuned for those and i have been your friendly i'm claiming it friendly headmistress slash cultural studies professor the future dr jones you can find me on twitter at a underscore wild underscore Akafan. You can see what I'm up to on Girls Run These Worlds. And I'm often bumming around the Three Black Halflings Discord. Happy to chat with people. And now we will go to Mr. Cobb. Hello, my name is Jeremy Cobb. You can, you're probably are familiar with me if you're listening to this, because this is on the podcast that I'm a co-host of, Three Black Halflings. So if you, if you're not familiar with it and you're still listening to this episode, we have other episodes that you should go check out. Do that. You can also follow us on Twitter at three, this number three, Black Halflings, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Cobb one. That's Cobb. With dos bes. I am Navar. I am the creator and host of the Secret Nerd podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Navar SNP. That's N A V A A R S N P, like Secret Nerd Podcast. Or you can find the podcast on Twitter at Secret NRD Social. Um, yeah, always, always a joy to get on here and talk about empathy. So thank you for having me, future Dr. Jones. Yeah. Catch us again next time. Bye.
That was a HeadGum Podcast.